Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to grab one and uh, turn to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in uh, Luke chapter 20 uh, this morning as we uh, look at what God has to say to us, knowing uh, the truth about Jesus. Uh, in case we didn't emphasize it enough, we really want to urge you to stick around uh, after this service. Come in here at 11 o'clock. You can stay in the back and watch the baptism. If you're really spiritual, you can come in here and hear the message twice. But uh, be sure to, to come in and just celebrate with everybody else about those who are just making their faith public by following the Lord in the waters of baptism. So we've got six that will be being baptized, Lord willing, and uh, youth and adults, and encourage you to, to hang hang around and, and just celebrate as, as God's family together. More answers to tough questions I've entitled this message, and if you were here with us last week, you recognize we looked at two of those questions. We're going to go to a third, but we didn't quite get to it, so we're, we're actually making that one question that I was going to just spend briefly on, and we're going to spend a lot of time on it this morning. But, you know, think about questions. Some questions are harder than others. Have you, uh, have you, have you uh, experienced that? You know, sometimes people ask you tough questions. And some questions are more important than others as well. Uh, for instance, if, if you're traveling, sometimes the question, should I turn left or right, could be rather important. You could take a long journey down the wrong path if you make a wrong turn. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I don't know if you've ever had that experience where uh, you, you go down a particular street and you discover after going a few hundred yards that you're actually going the wrong way on a one-way street. Anybody else has done that? Uh, no? Okay, I'm the only one. All right, so also uh, we had opportunity to visit our, our youngest son in Cyprus. In Cyprus, as he was doing a study abroad, and, and that particular place when you, when you drive, you drive on what we would consider in America, because America is always right, uh, is that uh, they're, they're driving on the wrong side of the road. Well, if you decide that you're going to travel a bit and you're going to get from one place to the other by driving a vehicle, you better take that up. And so, you know, I rented a car, and so I'm driving on the left side of the road, and I'm doing pretty well, except for the way my mind works, I was doing great until, for whatever reason, I had to make a U-turn. And once I made a U-turn, it changed everything in my mind, you know, and all of some on, on, on the right side, not on the left side. And apart from my, my wife screaming at me, we wouldn't be here today, all right? <laughs> and so you, as you think about questions or things you better be alert to and better get it right, it could be where you're driving, how you're driving, and which side of the road you're driving on. And, and today we're looking at one of those questions, or a couple, particularly the first one, but actually both of them are, are extremely important, about this is, this is critical to get it right. And so this morning, hopefully, uh, we'll all get it right. Now, last week, we looked at a couple questions and kind of renamed a couple of them. But if you ever want to get in an argument with someone or get a volatile time around the table, particularly if you have strong, opinionated people at the table, there's two subjects you don't want to talk about. One of them is politics, and the other is religion. Well, that's exactly what Jesus talked about last week is he was questioning about politics and about religion. And he spoke about what it was it really mean to be a citizen of, of this world as well as the world to come. And, and then he also talked about the whole issue of, of just, you know, where, where is the direction of our life? Well, th- this morning, we're going to look at another couple questions. We're not going to look at politics or religion, though you could somewhat relate to those. He's really going to ask the question about uh, I, I, the identity question and the question about money. Now, if you ever want to get people uncomfortable, whether it's in this kind of setting or another setting, just talk a lot about money, particularly if it's their money, about what they're doing with it or not what they're doing with and, and how they're spending it or not spending it. And, and Jesus talks about that by making an object lesson. But really what I want to spend the majority of our time together today is, is what does Jesus say about identity? Now, we might not use that word a lot, but we offer in settings where we might be thinking about who is that person? 
or, uh, or what does that person think about me? And, and we get kind of that whole reflective type of thought in our mind. And, and as you think about a place like this and a book like this, the most important question is a question that we're going to look at this morning. And, and the, really the question is, well, just who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And when I met with all those who are going to get baptized today, basically we spent a lot of time on just, just who is Jesus? Not, not in other people's opinion, although that's important in terms of kind of weighing the evidence or weighing your conclusion, but who is Jesus to you? And, and Jesus actually spent most of his time here before he went to the cross hammering that and, and trying to get people to think deeply about that and then come to a point of not just an opinion but conviction. Because if, if it is what Jesus says it's all about, your eternal destiny depends upon your conviction and faith in who Jesus is. So with that other thought, let's, let's get into this morning. Jesus asked the question that everyone needs to know the right answer. There are certain things that doesn't really matter, you know, about whether you get the right answer or not. It's just, it's not, it's just, it's, you know, what... It doesn't really matter, you know, what, what's, the right, what's the right way out to cook steak? Is it, is it rare, medium rare, medium, medium well? Is it tough like shoe leather? What, what, whatever, you know, it doesn't really matter because your taste is your taste. But as it relates to Jesus, we better get it right. And it better not be based on just other people's opinions, but what is it in your heart you believe about Jesus? So that's where we're going to try to see this today. And if you're at Luke chapter 20, that's where we're going to stay, but... We'll turn to a variety of other passages. Who is Jesus? Interesting enough is in the Bible, the Bible uses a lot of ways to try to convince us of, of who Jesus is. And so there's a number of names about Jesus, and it's good to have an idea about that. But just to kind of begin the discussion, in Matthew chapter 16, we have this account. Begin verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and I, and I got to stop for a moment to give you a commercial, is uh, we are planning a, of taking a group of people to Israel in 2019, November 2019, and we don't give a commercial on it every week. But this is a place that you, you don't want to miss if you get an opportunity to be in Israel. It's Caesarea Philippi. Because it's a place in which, really, the question that Jesus is about to ask is the best place to ask it, But because it's, it's on a religious corner. There are people believing all kinds of things about God, and some follow the pan god, which is kind of a weird god, and we'll talk more about that when you get to Caesarea Philippi with us. But, but Jesus is wanting them to understand life's most important question and life's most important answer. And he goes on and says, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And as you think about that, we'll be looking at that just a moment in terms of identifying who Jesus is. But his favorite label about himself is the son of man. Now, the reason of that is because of what's found in a book in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And though this is starting out maybe rather quick and heavy, it, it, there, there's a power and the simplicity about what we're going to try to say this morning. Jesus referred to himself as the son of man. Well, for us, we're thinking that's speaking about his humanity. And so what's the big thing about that? I'm, I'm a son of a man. My, my father it was John Arthur Johnson, Jr. I was the son of a man. And all of you men here today, I will just make this 
wild statement. All of you are sons of what? Men. But he was using it in a much more profound way than how we would use it. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, it says this. This is Daniel. I, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, which that was a code phrase to, to Yahweh, God the Father, and was presented before him. So the, the Son of Man is presented before God the Father. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion, which means rule, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His rule is an everlasting rule, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Let me ask you, how many, how many nations and kingdoms have, have risen and fallen in all of human history? Just about every one of them. You know, and we don't know how long our nation ticking away will last. But there's one nation that, that will never, there's one kingdom that will never end, and that's God's kingdom. That's God's rule. And who is the one who's going to be ruling? The one who is called the Son of Man, who has a relationship with the Heavenly Father, where throughout Scripture it says that, that God doesn't share his glory or his rule with anyone. So the only way that the Son of Man could have a kingdom that's going to last forever, that it has a rule that will last forever, is that he has to be who? He has to be God. And, and so... As Jesus is asking the question, though, he's realizing that most people aren't thinking that way. Well, who is the Son of Man? Well, he, he must be some, somebody important, right? Well, he's much more important than most people realize. He said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And here was the response. Here's the answer from the people on the street. And they said, some say John the Baptist. Well, Jesus thought John the Baptist was a pretty good guy because he said, until, until now, no one greater than John the Baptist has ever lived. But he also goes on and says, well, some think you're Elijah. Still, there's Jeremiah, and some say one of the prophets. So they answer with pretty good responses. He's pretty important, the Son of Man, the one that's promised to come. And they thought of the Son of Man as the Messiah, the one coming. But Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And of course, that's what's critical. It's, it's one thing, what is the person next to you, behind you, in front of you? What do they think about Jesus? But what do you think about Jesus? And Peter gets it right this time, and it was led to him by God. But it says this, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. In case you don't know, this Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, the one that was promised to come. You are, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You're the promised one, the son of the living God. So all of a sudden now, we've got it now trumped up a little bit. The Son of Man, if we understand what the Old Testament said, but he, he is the one who, who is going to have all rule, all dominion, all glory. And God, the only one who receives glory, ultimate glory, is God himself. So he's kind of elevated a little bit here. And now Peter's saying he, he's, he's the Son of God. And that's really what the next phrase, or fill in the blank if you're following with me, this is the other critical thing about when When the Bible say, says that Jesus is the Son of God, it doesn't mean somehow he's littler than the bigger God, right? He's sometimes somehow lesser than the, the older God. It, it is saying that he is, he is on the equal plane. He is of same substance and essence as his Father. 
you know, on a human level, we have that same idea as well. Our, our offspring are of the same essence that we are. And so when it says that Jesus is the Son of God, then we realize that he is being in that exalted position of being God himself. Now, we're looking at more answers to tough questions. I, I, if you've ever had a conversation with, with people that want to argue about who Jesus is, one of the things they'll say, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. The only reason people started worshiping him is that the people following him wanted to start a religion, and, and they invented all of this. Really? Really? Well, looking at a couple passages, we won't turn to them. In John chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus was... And again, we need to understand that the best people to interpret the Bible were the people there when it happened. Would you, would you agree with that? If we were to go back in history and I was somehow interpreting something that happened, you know, in the Revolutionary War, okay, and I could be all read up on it, but would the people who were living there understand it a little bit better than I would understand it? Shake your heads like you're agreeing with me, all right? So as we think about the Bible, the best interpreters of the Bible are the people that were there. So Jesus, in John chapter 5, he, 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 he talked about the Father and, and, and the Son doing things, working together and doing the same thing. And he said, he's my Father. Now, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, our Father, right? But Jesus uniquely would say, the Father is my Father. And then he would say the same things the Father, the Father God is doing, I am doing. Well, how did they interpret that? In John chapter 5, verse 18, what happened is that those who were listening and the Jewish people, they picked up stones to kill him. Why? Because he who claimed that the father was his father, being a man, as they saw, was making himself out to be equal with God. As I was talking to, to some of the, the um, Baptismal canons, you know, we, we were talking about the deity of Jesus, and it, it's, it's one thing to wrap your heart and your mind around that. And, and I said, well, what would you think of all of a sudden? I, I just said, I'm God. And every time I say they just start laughing, you know, in that kind of settings. Because it's just ludicrous, isn't it? I mean, I, I speak about God. I, I try to lead people to God. But if somehow I were to say, I am God, it's just laughable, okay? But they weren't laughing, because they recognized all that he was doing, all that he was saying, and they said, we've got, we've got to eliminate him. So they picked up stones to kill him. Why? Because he, as they saw, being a man, made himself out to be, and here it says very plainly, equal with God. And this is the whole mystery of who is God. There is only one God, but within the one God, there are three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And who unveils this truth so clearly is Jesus, the God that became man. And if God was trying to communicate to us clearly, and I use this all the time with little people and bigger people, if God wanted to speak to us clearly, it's like, it's like, a, like a, a person trying to speak to an ant. I could, I could scream all I want at an, at an ant in an anthill, and they wouldn't listen to me, or if they heard me, they couldn't understand me. But if I wanted to communicate to an ant, I'd become an ant. And that's, what, that's the story of the Bible, is God loves us so much that he became one of us to draw us to himself. 
And, and so the Son of Man, which does speak about his humanity, we need to understand that he's the Son of God. And what that means is that he is claiming to be equal with God. In John chapter 10, verses 30 through 33, we, we have, again, a conversation. I, I don't know how he could have made it more plainly, said it more plainly. He said, I and the Father are one. Now, if you're a skeptic, you say, well, he's just saying that, that I'm, 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 I'm thinking down the same path as God. I'm trying to follow his direction. But that's not how they interpreted it. When he, he said in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Again, they picked up stones to do what? To kill him. And Jesus being perceptive and always in control, he wanted to make this a teaching point. And he said, well, by, by what works have I done that you are now trying to execute me? And he knew there were certain things that really irritated them. They, they didn't like him doing miracles on, on what day? I kind of remember what day. The Sabbath, right? Because that broke one of their commandments. And so, so he said, are, are, you, are you killing me because I've, I've done the miraculous on, on the Sabbath? And, and no, they said, no, because you calling God your Father and being one with your Father, are making yourself out to be equal with who? With God. I, I don't know how more plainly you could put that. And, and that's why C.S. Lewis said, look, you, you can't just say Jesus was a great man, a great teacher, a religious leader, someone you want to follow their model or example. Because Jesus is either a liar or truly a Lord or he's a lunatic. Same ideas in, in John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. And this is right after Jesus made the gospel pretty plain. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And right before that, he talked about preparing a place for people who knew him. Well, how, how are we going to get there? How are we going to get to that place God has prepared for us, which we call heaven? Well, he said, it, it's through me, and, and there's only one way to get there, through me. Well, again, we think all those who were with Jesus in the beginning were totally convinced day one. Well, I struggled with that. And so Philip, Philip asked him a question. He said, well, if you'll show us the Father, if you'll show us God the Father, then we'll get it. And Jesus says in John, John 14, verse 8 and 9, have I been with you for so long and you still don't know my identity? You don't still know who I am? And he put it as, about as plain as you could put it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And see, that's laughable for anyone else in this world to say. Well, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And we would all laugh at someone. Be, uh, uh, unless they could do everything that Jesus did when he was here, we would just say that's just beyond imagination. But even those who had the facts before him, they, 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 they had Jesus doing all that he did, all that he said, all that he fulfilled conquering death, and, and because of their hard heart, they would not submit to him as God. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of Man. He is fully man. He's the Son of God. He's fully God. But as we're going to look at the passage today, and this is all intro, so we're going to be here a while, okay? In, in Luke chapter 20, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus speaks, and it's actually another, another account of this particular account we're going to look at in, in Luke chapter 20, is that he says, uh, whose, whose son is the Christ? Whose son is the Messiah? And, and the Pharisees respond back, he is the son of David. So here we have in the Bible describing Jesus as the son of man, as the son of God, and now the son of David. And you say, well, why, why, why are you bringing up the son of David? 
in Luke chapter 18, verse 39, you have a, a, a blind man, Bartimaeus, and, and he is desperately in need for God through Jesus to heal him of his sight. And he said, have mercy on me, son of David. Now, now the reason this is so critical is because this is the intro into the passage we have right now. So if you still have your Bibles, or if you want to just listen on as I read, in, in Luke chapter uh, 20, beginning at verse 41, there's a short account which, which has a lot of meat to it, and we can read it and kind of miss it, but Jesus is trying to use to these who consider themselves authorities in the Word of God, hey, you're not reading your Bibles very carefully. Then he, verse 41, Jesus said to them, how is it they say that Christ, the Messiah, is David's son? So they're saying, okay, you can get it right that he's the son of David, but do you understand what that means? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, it's Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And we'll stop there before we look at verse 44. You're thinking, okay, I'm I'm missing it. This is why I don't read the Bible, because it doesn't make sense to me. Well, you just need to slow down and just look at what he's trying to say here. David's writing a psalm, and he makes this statement, the Lord, and if you have Bibles there that has all the letters capitalized there in Lord, it's, it's really Yahweh, okay? It's the covenant name of God. Yahweh says to my Lord to another name for God in the Old Testament, but to be the one who is in charge, to be sovereign, to be leader, to be master. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so this is always known in the Old Testament as a Messianic psalm. So he says the the Lord, Yahweh, says to Messiah, but my Lord, who is the son of David... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So they're thinking, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. If the Messiah is going to be the son of David, David is the king, the most celebrated king in all of Israel. How can a descendant of his be higher than than the king? Doesn't make sense. Now, you know, put it in our in our you know, experience. Any one of our offspring, you know, sons or daughters, can overachieve anything that we have done. Probably my kids, I've already done that already, all right? But I, I, can I be honest with you? I haven't called any of them Lord recently, all right? You know, I'm, I'm still their father, all right? I, I, I'm the, still the leader, I'm the patriarch of the family, right? They, they could be smarter than me and, and higher achievers than me, but I'm still their father. Get it? And, and so as they're looking, they're saying, this doesn't make sense. How can the descendant of David, and we all know the Messiah, the Christ, is to be the descendant of David. How could David himself say that his descendant was going to be over him? In fact, that's exactly what is asked here in verse 44. Therefore, David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? You don't, you don't call your children Lord. It, 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 that's just not how it's, it's, it's put together. That's not how the family works. 
And so they were at a dilemma. We're saying he's the son of David, but do you understand what that means? And if you go on, and even in just verse 2, this one that is your Lord, that is going to be your descendant, all the enemies of the world are going to be under his foot. And you read through the rest of Psalm 110, you see this one that is to come is going to be in all power, just like we looked in Daniel. He's going to be have the dominion over everything on this world and in this world. So, so what's the conclusion here that Jesus is trying to say? And it, it doesn't read easily for us. How can this be then? Well, then the one who is to come, the one who is the son of man, he's fully physical. He's the, you know, he is a human being, but he's an exalted one. In fact, he is the one who is going to have all rule and power. He's also God. He's the son of God. And so how do, how do you play this? Well, the only way to understand this is the only way that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, could be the son of David and still be his Lord is that he has to be both God and man. And see, that's the miracle of Christmas. The miracle of Christmas is, is not simply that this beautiful child was born. We actually we don't know how beautiful that child was, but this beautiful this child that was born in the manger was was celebrated in so many different ways by the shepherds and the angels in the heaven and, and the wise men who came is that the reason this, this is such a miracle story, it's it's God becoming man. And as they saw and understood what it meant to be the son of David, that he was both God and man. But, but, but let's, let's push it up to a, a place where, you know, we can wrestle with a little bit more. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 20. Uh, in, in your outline, it says John chapter 5. But in John chapter 20, again, we look at people who are trying to get it right. Now, now you know, I said some questions are more important than others. We all understand that. Um, and, and sometimes people ask you a question, and you could care less what the answer is, Right? But, but if Jesus is claiming to be God, this is, a, this is, a, this is a, do, a deal breaker, right? Either he is or he isn't. And they wrestled with that, his closest companions. Jesus kept telling them about that he was going to suffer, he was going to die, and three days later he was going to raise from the dead. But they didn't quite get it, did they? And, and particularly the guys got it less than the, the gals, the girls. Okay, at least they went to the tomb. The guys were still hiding out. Later on, they, 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 Jesus appears to them, and they become convinced. But one of them was not there, and that was Thomas, who forever has a, a, a nickname. His name is what? Doubting Thomas. But quite frankly, I, I, I would have probably been exactly the same. Look at John chapter 20, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. There's a little town in Israel called Missouri. Okay, you know, it's a show me city. No, he wasn't born in Missouri, but it was like, you know, unless I see it. Now, unless you can prove it to me, I am not going to be convinced of this. So what happens? After eight days, the disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, so Jesus shows up, kind of 
passes right through a room without opening the door, and that was pretty amazing as well. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears, and he, and he sees his hands and his side. And he says to Thomas, reach here with your finger and, and see my hands, and, and reach here in your hand and put it on my side, and, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Can I be honest here? I, I was raised in the church. I heard all the stories about Jesus when I was as, as young as I can imagine, all right? But there was a time in my life I did not believe. And I came to a point in my life I decided, am I going to believe or I'm not going to believe? Thomas, can you imagine? I mean, he was one of the 12. He was with Jesus all the time, saw all the miracles. Learn all the things that Jesus had filled in the Old Testament. Seeing Jesus bring sight to those who are blind, hearing to those who couldn't hear, and bringing people back from the dead. And he hadn't come to that point where he had fully believed. And the truth is, all of us who come to places like this, we have to decide, am I more Thomas before he saw Jesus or more Thomas after he saw Jesus? Because whatever it takes bringing you to the point where you're convinced that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That, that's the crisis point in life. And Jesus is going to say, you got, you got to decide. Are you going to be unbelieving or are you going to be believing? And, and, and believing is not just wishful thinking. I hope it's true. I hope it's true. Is that for I'm going to believe it? No, you need to be convinced it's true. And then stake your life on it and live as, as a believer following his leading. Thomas answered, and this is, this is the amazing thing. He said, my Lord and my who? God. See, see we need to understand that, that Jesus is much, much, so much more than a religious leader, you know, a, a prince of preachers, a, a, a compelling personality, a, a person that, that just grabbed the hearts of people. Thomas came to that point when he believed, you are my Lord, you are the leader, and the supreme being, the one who should be in the control of my life. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. You know, in many ways, he's, he's speaking to all of us here. None of us were here 2,000 years ago. None of us saw Jesus risen from the dead. But we have seen all the track records of lives changed because of Jesus touching someone's life. People filled with guilt and are now forgiven. People who are, are filled with going down their own path, living self-centered lives, and saying, no, I want to go down another path. I, I want to be led by someone who wants to make me more loving and caring in other people's lives. Uh, th- these people aren't perfect, but you can see something happened. And what was it that happened? They became followers of Jesus because they put their faith and trust in him and their lives were changed. So each of us need to understand that this is life's greatest question. Who do you say Jesus is? And what have you done with it? Is he your God? Is he your Lord? You know, it's interesting, as the Christmas story unfolded, and we won't turn to it, but in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47, you have, you have Jesus coming in on the scene, and Mary says, I exalt the Lord, 
my God and Savior. The reason he was given the name Jesus because he came to save us from our what? Our sin. All of us are in need, desperate need to be forgiven. Essentially, in this obscure psalm to most of us, Psalm 110, Peter uses it in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, and he said, you know, this is the one whom you have crucified, and then he quotes this passage, he is the one proven by his death, uh, resurrection, and ascension as being Christ, the Christ, exalted as Lord and God. What have you done with Jesus? We're all at that point where we have to, ABCs of the gospel, we've got to admit our need. Recognize that we are far from God because of our sin, the things that we've done wrong in our life where we rebelled against. We basically live self-centered lives. We want to do our own thing. And we've got to admit that. B, we've got to believe, we've got to believe that Jesus is who we claim to be, that he truly is God. And he, he demonstrated because he died and rose again from the dead. Either we believe it or we don't believe it. But even after we met our need and want to turn from our sin and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again for our sins, we got to commit. we got to get off the fence. we got to decide, I want Jesus to be my Lord and my God, the leader and forgiver of my life. And I want to begin the journey of following him. That's what Jesus said to Thomas. You've got to decide. Are you going to remain unbelieving or decide to become believing in who I am and what I want to do in your life. When we close our message today, I'm going to give you an opportunity, if you haven't done that, to, to make that commitment right where you sit. Because this is life's most important question to answer in your life. You know, it's interesting, when he, when he preached this sermon, there were people who were listening, but they... They could hear the words, but they, they could not open their hearts to the truth. And, and the reason was, and, and their pride was different than sometimes the way we express our pride, but in, in Luke chapter 20, it's interesting who his audience was at that day. Verse 45, and, and while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes. And, and, and let's put us all... Compared to some people who, who never come into a, a church or a place where the Bible is discussed, uh, you know, we're more religious than, at least from the world's perspective, than they are. But just because we're religious doesn't mean necessarily we have a, a, a front step forward to, to follow Jesus. And, and some people, the ones that we think are the most religious, we think, well, they have the most opportunity to follow God. And, and sometimes people's religiosity is, is their biggest barrier. And the scribes, they were the, the experts on the law. They were the experts in the word. They, most of them were probably Pharisees, but I was reading about them this week. It was just kind of amazing, the, the facade that they had. R. Kent Hughes says in his book on Luke, he says, the scribes wore a white linen uh, robe with a long fringe that reached to its feet. And wherever they, they went... That people could see them walking. And, and, and let me ask you, like, the people who wear white and, it, and goes to the, the floor, are those people ready to, to, ready to work? When I, when I tell you put on work clothes, are you going to wear all white? <laughs> I know painters do, but 
it's not white for very long, right? There's all kinds of colors on that. But, you know, if you're wearing all white and, and you can hardly walk around because it's reaching the floor, you're, you're not ready to do anything. And the scribes, the, the, the experts in, in the Old Testament weren't that way as well. In fact, R. Kent Hughes writes this, they were power dressers, ecclesiastically swans, regally gliding among the, the mud hens of common humanity. I never write like that or talk like that, but, you know, it's pretty pictorial. In the book, uh, Jerusalem in Time of Jesus, the author Jeremiah writes this, with, all the people would rise respectfully when the scribes would pass by. They were greeted with such statements, my great one or master. That's kind of how you greet me every time, right? No, no. I mean, they were just elevated, the place where people thought, this is the example of being close to God. You know, wear a certain garment. You know, uh, look a certain way and, and uh, don't bother yourself with the, the medial things of you, using your hands to do anything with them. And, and look for people to, to call you great exalted titles. When the wealthy would give a feast, scribes were considered necessary, this is interesting, were necessary ornaments to somehow adorn the meal. That, that's a pictorial way to say it. You know, what were religious people, the most religious people known as, well, if, if we're going to put on a, a great dinner, we've got to have a few of them because we want us to look good. So they're the ornaments to make this a special time. And, and, and they, would, they would always sit at the right or the left of the host. They were, they were honored in so many different ways, even above the aged, even above their parents. In the synagogue, they were placed in the ultimate honor, facing the congregation with their backs against the chest that held the Torah, the Bible. And, and it caught them to the point where they, they were so far from him. Going back to verse 45. And, and while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who, who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplace and chief, chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. But what do they do? They devour widows' houses, and for appearance sake, after long prayers, they will receive greater condemnation. Which is the reality that the more we hear the truth and reject the truth, our hearts get hardened and the condemnation is greater. What is life's greatest question? Who is Jesus? And who is Jesus to you? We're just going to touch these next four verses. But Jesus even goes on and says, look, I want you to understand that the, the life of walking with me is not somehow floating in a cloud even when you're here. It's investing in what's important. And so then he, then he talks about, about money. And I'm just going to read the text and we can see the text in its simplicity. When Jesus starts talking about money... The two very simple points you're going to get here, there are religious bad examples and there are religious good examples. And he, Jesus, looked up and he saw the rich putting the gifts into the treasury and he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. In our day, basically, she, she was putting in two little pennies. And he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of you, for they all out of their surplus put in the, to the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. In the temple area, it was, it was a magnificent building, and it, it had been built in such a way that the, you didn't pass around the plate. You, you went by these, these great treasury places. 
They were, there were seven trumpets that kind of in, in verse order, you, it was long on the top and big on the, on the bottom. And, and, and people would throw their coins in. And if you had a lot of coins, it would make a lot of noise. If you had a few coins, it wouldn't make hardly any noise at all. And you had those who were giving what appeared to be a lot, but, but the reality is they were giving very little compared to what, all that they had. And as we think about giving our lives to Jesus and giving what we have to Jesus, all that we have is His. Uh, you, you can make these simple observations. Jesus knows who gives the least and who gives the most. And, and He also cares about the proportion more than the portion. Or put another way, men see what is given and Jesus sees what is left. Isn't that true? And and what he saw, this this woman, she didn't have a lot, but what she had, she was willing to give. And and God is not wanting anybody to be broke by by giving to his work and to his kingdom. But but he's saying, what you have, are you willing to invest in that which is important? There's some amazing ways that our our culture uses their money. Do you know that for the last 10 years, they've, They've determined that $180 billion is spent on gambling every year. $180 billion. You know, $350 million are spent every, every Halloween. You think that might be a little low, but $350 million is spent every Halloween to put costumes on your pets. And, and, and the Bible says that where your heart is, there will your treasure. Where your where your resources are, there will there will your treasure be also, right? And Jesus Jesus is speaking to them. Look, at you, you have devoured those who are poor. He says widows' houses, and and they had an elaborate system where, you know, maybe a, a widow did not have any family, and they made sure that it didn't go to anybody else, but it came to them. And there's a lot of abuses in our Christian world where people are getting rich on the gospel, where other people are being impoverished. There's no room for that in God's kingdom. And so what what is Jesus saying to us this morning? Really what he's saying to us is, what are you doing with Jesus primarily and fundamentally? It's also saying, what are you doing with your money? But what, what are you doing with Jesus? Have you come to that point in your life you're convinced that he is who he claimed to be, that he's God in the flesh. He's the God-man who came to invade our planet so that we might be rescued from our sin. When I was talking to some of the baptismal candidates that we'll be having in just a moment, I asked them, well, how do you get in on this? And I, I try to break it out as simply as possible. Well, well you've well, you got to tell God. Well, how do you tell God? Well, what, do you, what, what is it when you tell God? Well, that's That's prayer. Well, why don't we just right now tell God what's in your heart? And one of them prayed a very simple prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I, I, I want to be forgiven for my sin. I want you to come into my life. I want you to lead me. I want to be the person you want me to be. And when they made that commitment, they crossed from knowing about Jesus to knowing Jesus. 